From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we connected with Max Lloyd of Grove Winery in Gibsonville, North Carolina. Growing grapes and making wine runs in the family, and Max was happy to pick up the tradition. He recognized that being closer to a larger city would be a benefit, so he eventually found land near Greensboro, which is where the winery and primary vineyard are located. The wine mouths are also back in this episode. This time they tell us more about white wines, just in time for summer. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. Okay, so it's another socially distant episode of Cork Talk. So today we have with us Max Lloyd of Grove Winery in Gibsonville, North Carolina. Max, welcome to Cork Talk. Uh, welcome, guys. Thank, thanks for having me. So Max, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how, you, how Grove Winery got started. All right. Well, we we actually had a vineyard in uh, in Virginia that we started somewhere around 1995, and uh, that was up in the Smith Mountain area. And then we decided that we wanted to start a winery. At the time, I was flying a lot out of the RDU airport, so we were looking for the place that was as close as possible to the RDU airport where we could grow fine uh, European style grapes. So we, uh, we looked at a number of farms. This was uh, in the 2001 time frame, And uh, we, we really didn't want to do a winery up in the Virginia area. It was a great place to grow grapes, but it wasn't a great place to put a winery as far as, you know, population density and that kind of stuff. So uh, we found this uh, farm that had just, just beautiful soil and, and beautiful slope and beautiful aspect. Uh, in uh, northeastern Guilford County, right on the Alamance County line here in the uh, Hall River Valley AVA. And so we planted our first grapes in April of uh, 2002. And so the winery has been going right now for about 18 years. So what were the varieties you planted there on the site first? And what varieties did you have planted in Smith Mountain in Virginia? So Smith Mountain was primarily Cabernet Sauvignon with some uh, small blocks of Cabernet Franc and Merlot and Sangiovese and Norton. But it, over half of that vineyard was Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, and actually, we recently sold that vineyard uh, about two years ago to a couple that's expanding and, and they're actually expanding on, on the Cabernet. So there's a there's a big need, especially in, in uh, northern Virginia for, for Cabernet right now. And then on this vineyard, which which has similar weather we started out with cabernet sauvignon cabernet franc and merlot the three bordeaux grapes we then planted two italian grapes uh nebbiola and sangiovese and that was all that we planted in 2001 and then 2002 we planted some white grapes uh chardonnay chardonnay and tremonette and then a few years after that we we tried an experiment with some pinot grigio and and that didn't work so well so we yanked that and then we've recently yanked some uh tempranillo which uh, which i love as a grape but tempranillo was getting uh more downy mildew in north carolina than it does in you know i don't know if you guys have been to the rioja region of spain but it's just bone dry so right. the tempranillo hasn't worked out so we've looked at what some successful vineyards around us and so we've just planted new blocks of Petit Mansing in the last couple of years. Yeah, Petit Mansing seems to be doing really well in North Carolina, and a lot of folks are planting it now. So some folks are ripping out Chardonnay and replacing it with Petit Mansing because it it does like our weather a little bit better and, and produces some great wine. Uh, let's yeah. talk a little bit more about uh, Nebbiolo. So there's very few plantings of that that we're aware of in North Carolina. So what was the decision uh, to plant that? and how does it do in the vineyard? So the reason we planted Nebbiola is just because it's my favorite drink to drink. And, you know, I can't afford these $100 Barolas. <laughs> so we uh, that's that's why we planted it. Um, we it, it grows actually pretty well here. It, it took some figuring out. So, like I said, we, those vines have been in the ground now for 18 years. 
Um, we've learned to prune them in a different way. So where, whereas uh, most of our vineyard in most years will use spur pruning, the Nebbiola will actually do, we, we, we cane prune that because it's more fruitful further down the cane. Um, we also uh, keep the fruit load on that one lower. So whereas most of our vinifera will be at three or three and a half tons an acre, uh, the Nebbiola we keep at two or two and a half tons an acre. It seems to perform better there. And then there's there's a couple like little weird things. So in North Carolina soils, we were seeing a little bit of magnesium deficiency. So generally mid to late June, when we when we start seeing a little magnesium deficiency, we'll just we'll just throw one box of Epsom salts in the sprayer, and and that seems to clean that up. But but so so over the years, we sort of learned how to grow it. So is that the variety that needs the most tender loving care in the vineyard? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cabernet Sauvignon will, will grow like a weed here in this part of the Hall River Valley. It needs very little care. But the yeah, the Nebbiola definitely, uh, either myself or my vineyard manager will prune those vines ourselves. And, and it definitely needs more care than the other varieties. So talk to us a little bit about the type of wine it makes and how it compares to Barolo. Yeah, so, so we've done blind tasting with uh, Italian Nebbiolas and Barolas, and, and we've come out very, very well. It's done very well in, in, in regional and international wine competitions. You know, Nebbiola naturally has a little bit lighter color sure. than some of your other sure. big reds, but, but don't let that fool you. It's, it's got really strong, long tannins. That's what we produce here. Uh, one of the benefits of the Hall River Valley AVA, we're uh, a little bit uh, east, and so we have a longer growing season than than much of North Carolina. So some of those late season uh, varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon and Nebbiola, we're we're able to get them very very ripe uh, and, and really get those tannins up. That's that's exciting to hear. So, you know, you're our first uh, location that's actually based in the Haw River Valley. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that AVA and what sets it apart from other regions here in North Carolina? Yeah, so I think I think the the, the biggest positive to the AVA is is the longer growing season. So we're on a here at Grove, we're on a latitude very similar to South Sonoma. You know, it gives us a really good growing season. Most of the vineyards in the Hall River Valley are near the river itself, the Hall River which is a very old river with very old soil. So most of the vineyards are within a mile on either side of the river. And what we get there is these weird old well-drained soils. It's not like the clay that you would see in, in Orange County or even other parts of uh, uh, Alamance or Guilford County. These are, these are actually very well-drained sort of sandy, rocky soils as you get close to the river. If, if you walk around here at Grove, actually just where the winery is we have clay but across the street where the vineyard is it, 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 we have the better drained soils uh so so that's the advantage of the hall river valley the disadvantage is we're a little bit closer to the coast than yadkin so we have a little bit more susceptibility to to hurricanes and and you know over over the couple decades we, we've seen a couple i can definitely imagine i mean some of them coming uh pretty close to the shore and pretty far inland so i can imagine that being further east is definitely one of those downsides of the hall river valley but it sounds like the extended growing season definitely makes up for it in non-hurricane years Right. Well put. Well put. Yeah. So let's take a step back for a second. Um, we talked a bit about some of the grapes that you grow. We talk about, you know, the new vineyard site itself. But why is it you got into growing grapes in the first place? Well, bo both of my grandfathers uh, made homemade wine. Uh, and my father uh, was a winemaker as well, uh, growing up in Virginia, North Carolina. So, you know, we always had that as part of the family culture, and we've always been a family that gardens and eats well, and, and uh, you know, lo local food wasn't a trend. Local food is just what, what, what we did. And my, my grandfather on my mother's side had a huge garden that kept the, the whole family and great vegetables all the time. Um, so, so I think it was just part of the family culture growing up, and then uh, I, I was in high tech in the semiconductor industry and the software industry, and uh, did some work in Sonoma where I was actually out there for a while. And so I started hanging around with some of the, uh, some of the wineries there. And, and that sort of took my bug, took my passion up an, another notch where I was going, wow, this is, this is really good stuff. And at that point, 
that was early enough. This was in the very late 80s that people couldn't see, well, why would you grow grapes in Sonoma or, or even Napa? I mean, good wines only come from Italy and France. And so, uh, you know, at that point, the Virginia wine industry was just barely getting started. And uh, so we jumped on that up, up at the Smith Mountain area vineyard. So now you're also kind of a, another unique uh, guest for us to have on the show because you also, I mean, you've had vineyards in Virginia and North Carolina simultaneously. So what would you say the differences are between the two vineyard sites or the multiple vineyard sites, you know, the ones up in Virginia and the ones down here in North Carolina at the winery? Well, we, we were in South Virginia only about 90 miles due north of where we are now. So so weather-wise, climate-wise, soil-wise, it was actually pretty similar. So the varieties that did well tended to do well here as well. Tended to. There, there's, a, there's a few changes. The biggest difference I see is, is in the market. Uh, Virginia is um, at least a decade ahead of us in growing the wine industry. And the willingness for the consumer to buy a $40 bottle of Cabernet that was oak aged and aged for two years and took a lot of time and passion to build, I think is a lot stronger in Virginia and North Carolina. We have a, uh, maybe a little more reticence for the upper level wines and maybe a little bit more, uh, uh, customer demand for the sweet wines. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And based on our, travels in Virginia, I would tend to agree with, with that. And, and the fact that their industry has been around uh, a little bit longer, they've had a little bit more time, as you said, probably a good decade ahead of us. So we have stuff to look forward to though. So, (laughs) you know, I think one of the things that's come with that industry being there is, you know, a Virginia restaurant couldn't imagine not having Virginia wines on its wine list. Sure. Uh, They would get, they would get so much pushback, but, uh, you know, you, you can walk into any number of restaurants in North Carolina still and, and not see North Carolina wines on the wine list. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's something that we as, as consumers out there need to make sure when we are able to get back to restaurants that, uh, you know, we ask for that. And especially if it's a farm to fork restaurant where they're wanting to, to promote local and they don't have a local wine, it's like, okay, come on now, let's, let's get with it. But uh, something exactly. that will just take time, I think, to, to work through. Um, I'm going to switch gears okay. just slightly. So how did Grove get the name Grove? Uh, basically, uh, <laughs> there, there's three stories. I'll tell you two of them. Um, <laughs> so so um, one of them, where the vineyard site is, it's in a bend on the Hall River where uh, the vineyard itself is sort of surrounded by a big grove of trees with adjoining farmland on the other side of the trees. So so in that way it fit. Also um, the historic Greensboro High School, which is where I finished up, uh, where the students would meet after school. There was a little place called The Grove and that that's where the students would sort of meet after school. So those, those are uh, two of the inspirations behind the name. And then, uh, you know, the other thing is the URL was available. <laughs> that always makes it easier. And actually, one other thing that I really liked is, is I was back back when we started this place in uh, in the early 2000s, I was sort of on a Zinf- red Zinfandel kick, and I really liked Ridge, right? And it wasn't Pine Ridge or, or Vista Ridge or anything like that. It was just Ridge. So, so that's sort of also one of the reasons we liked Grove. So let's talk a little bit more about the style of wine that's made. So there's a variety. We've already talked. There's a variety of varieties. So what's the kind of the overriding um, thing that you're looking for whenever wine is made? Yeah, so so here we, we try to stick uh, pretty strongly to uh, European styles. So I, I tend to see the East Coast as being more of a old world style of wine where we can actually taste the weather from year to year and taste the differences in vintages. Um, you know, we're, we're watering with what gives us what you know god gives us from the sky not you know what's piped in from a river in the next state or whatever so you know we do have changes in vintages and those can be fun and exciting and 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 make the wine uh sort of jump out from year to year in different ways uh in fact there's a there's a couple came in just a few minutes ago and 
and they were able to purchase three different years of the same wine. And so they're going to do little verticals where they can, you know, just taste the difference in the climate from, from those three years at a time. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that's our philosophy is we want to stick with the old world wine styles. Um, we also have a bit of a difficulty here because we are a, a warmer weather vineyard. Uh, it's hard for us to do some of the uh, more nuanced aromatic reds, for instance, I've tasted absolutely wonderful Rieslings from the northern Yadkin Valley. Um, if you tried to grow Riesling here at Grove, our weather would just cook the aromas right out of it. So um, we can do aromatic wines like Tremonette and Viognier that can take the heat, but it would be very difficult to do a, a Riesling or a Gewurztraminer or some of the, uh, you know, even like Sauvignon Blanc, it's, it might be too warm here. So earlier when we were preparing for the interview today, you mentioned that you're in the winery and you're actually making wine today. So uh, what you making up? So we uh, so we actually also contract with uh, one additional vineyard that's 12 miles due north of here, Stores Vineyard. And uh, we just bottled the second year of a Petite Syrah grown by him. We, we only had t- two barrels worth this year, but I think we'll have three next year. And uh, so we bottled the Petite Syrah, and then we uh, were racking also another one of his wines, the Viognier, getting that one ready to bottle. And uh, he also grows Malbec for us. Let's talk a little bit more about Malbec. There's not a whole lot of folks that are doing a single varietal Malbec either. What makes that grape special and that wine special? Yeah, so so one of the cool advantages we, we have here is the NC State Research Vineyard was between Reedsville and Wentworth, about 17 miles northwest of here. And they had copious notes on what varieties had done well and how ripe they were able to get them and how well they did with disease and how well they did. Uh, actually, uh, a, a professor named Scott Lawrence made a lot of test batches of wine and kept great notes. And as we were going through his notes, um, one of the things that leapt out to us was Viognier. Uh, another one that leapt out to us was Malbec. And that sort of makes sense because we're having really good luck and really good quality with our Bordeaux varieties, the, the Cab Sav, the Cab Franc, and Merlot. So it would just make sense that Malbec, which was also originally from Bordeaux, would do well here. And and it's done absolutely amazing. Uh, it, it it makes a, a big, big red wine, uh, very similar to South American Malbecs. And we we do it in two styles. We do a unoaked, which is more of a pure South American style. And then we actually do a barrel or two each year of a reserve Malbec that, that we age for 18 to 24 months. So what type of oak are you using? Are you using French oak or American oak or Hungarian? All the above? Uh, we, we use almost exclusively European and, and we'll usually play off the, the Hungarian and French to see which we can get the best quality and price for that year. Most years, uh, it seems to be Hungarian, but some years we can get you know better price, better quality on the French barrels than we'll use those. The only time we use American oak is we do a reserve Chardonnay, a California style Chardonnay. And for that, we'll use American oak, but all of the reds are done in uh, European oak. I think for that Chardonnay, the last time we had it, it was the 2009 vintage and we had it though. It's only been what, three or four years ago, probably, but it was fantastic. We like, we like the Chardonnay is probably one of our favorite grapes. Um, and we like the diversity in the way and styles in which Chardonnay is made. So we like that big, bold uh, California style, but we also like the more nuanced style from France. And of course, who doesn't like sparkling? So Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's quite quite the versatile grape, but that one in particular was quite wonderful. And we actually, I think the, the most memorable time we had it was uh, a t- the first time we've ever met Jesse and Jessica from the Wine Mouse was at Grove. Um, it was a warm Saturday in the middle of December, like, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, and we had that, that wine out there on the patio. And when we say warm, we were in t-shirts without any jackets. Yeah, so it was it like was, 75 degrees. But the Chardonnay hit the spot. It yeah. was it was an exceptional bottle. And we were just enjoying it while we got to meet our new co- our counterparts. So Excellent. We're glad you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, you, you, you get those spring and summer days in the middle of winter here, don't you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, we've talked a lot about different varietals that you uh, are growing in the vineyard and some of the different wines that you make there. But 
if there was maybe one or two that you would say are your absolute favorite wines, what would you say those are? I think the thing that I like best is the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Nebbiola, which grow very well here year in and year out when I'm drinking red. And and for the whites, I sort of ping pong between, uh, you know, a Burgundy style of Chardonnay. And and uh, I, I really like Tremonette as a, gro- as a grape. Uh, it's very versatile in the winery. But it's also very versatile at the on the food table. It just you know we you know before the COVID stuff, we used to have food trucks here, and uh, and, and Tremonet goes with so many different types of of food. Whether it's you know traditional German food to spicy Asian food, so I, I think those are my two favorite whites. It's just a a really straightforward Chardonnay and and something with some Tremonet in it. And with the Tremonette, you do it in a couple of different styles, right? Right. So we do a traditional trocken dry style. We do a hob trocken or half dry style. And then generally, it, it's one of the major grapes in our dessert wine as well. So you mentioned the food trucks. So unfortunately, you know, right now it's probably it's you're not really having events. But talk to us about the food truck rodeo and what that means uh, to your business. Yeah. So so we're we like a lot of wineries are are out in the country and and it's a bit of a food desert and it's definitely a, a bit of a restaurant desert. And so the second Sunday of each month for years and years now we've held a food truck rodeo. Uh, with a dozen or more trucks, so it's not a not a huge rodeo like Raleigh or Greensboro, but it's it's big enough that there's a lot of variety in in, in your food choices, and uh, it's a great way to pair local foods and local wines. We're going to take a quick break for our education segment while Max helps a customer, and then we'll be right back. It's time again for wine class with the wine mouths, Jesse and Jessica. We're happy to have you back. Thanks for having us. So, what are we covering today? Well, so we've talked about red wine and we've talked about rosé, so it's only fitting that we go to white wine. Perfect. So we're going to talk a little bit about the differences in making white wine versus red and rosé. So first, it starts out pretty much the same. You harvest the grapes, gotta have grapes. You press the grapes, gotta have juice. So the difference is you're immediately getting rid of the skins and um, seeds, so you know, you harvest and you get the juice the same day. So no skin contact. Correct. Okay. Unless you're making orange wine, but that's a whole different <laughs> topic for another I was time. Ask about <laughs> <orange wine>. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, and then you ferment the juice, and white wine takes a less time to produce than red because less steps and less time required. So um, in theory, you could end right there, and you could ferment and bottle and serve. So sometimes you'll see white wine, you know, in the same year the next year from the harvest date because it can be done so quickly. So to oak or not to oak? Or you can take a while with it if you want to oak. (laughs) So what do you prefer, oak or not oaked? Unoaked. Unoaked. Okay. I mean, that's with Chardonnay, but like with other, I don't know, is it common to oak other white wines? There are certain varietals that can be oaked. Viognier is one that's sometimes oaked. Um, Semillon, I think we've had a couple oaked semillon. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, I guess, just the winemaker's choice, and it depends on what style you're looking to make as if you, to determine if you oak or unoak. But in yeah. general, your preference is unoaked. Yes. Yes. So what about the oak versus the stainless steel, if you will, that you like? So yeah. I prefer acid, so I'm a big fan of high acid wines. And I think, um, for me, I like the crispness of a white wine that hasn't been oaked, because, you know, the... Oaking, it's really hard to oak a wine and it not go through malolactic fermentation. Mm. It's possible, but it's really hard that that is not in the oak barrels. And so a lot of times you'll get your acid, your sharp acids converted to a more creamy acid, which is really nice for red wine. And it can be nice for a white wine if you want that full body, mm-hmm. creamy kind of um, flavor profile. But if you want to keep high acid, then it's not really what you want to go for. Yeah. And I think with the oak, some of those oak characteristics can sometimes overpower, and I really want the fruit to come through. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm a big fan of acid too, so that that's my sense. personal preference. But you guys are oaked Chardonnay fans, right? I like Chardonnay any way you can have okay. it. So oaked, unoaked, kind of a blend between the two, sparkling, whatever. Um, I, we both, I think, love Chardonnay. Um, so either way, but I find it interesting. Vignet with a little oak, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Roussan with a little oak, or Petit Manzain even with a right. little oak. 
But you do have to be careful because, as you pointed out, white wine, you still want a little bit of acid. And, and like you guys, I, I do love acid in wine, but I also, I like that round, buttery mm. Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy that. So it really just depends on what food I'm having yeah. and, and what I'm what I'm mood I'm in and what the weather's like. <laughs> What's your favorite food pairing with an oak Chardonnay? Mm, that's a great question. I would say for me, um, if you're going to have some sort of chicken dish or roasted chicken dish or something, or even like oysters possibly, although oysters is probably better with like sparkling, mm-hmm. so a block to block uh, would probably be better with, a, with oysters. I love a, um, an oaky Chardonnay with pesto. Because the the kind of sharpness and garlicky herbaceousness of the pesto kind of goes in and, and blends a little bit with the oaky. I think that works out well. Yeah, but if we're talking un oak chardonnay, I got that one on down for you. So you <laughs> can go and you get Nancy's Fancies Champagne Cheddar. So Nancy's Fancies is from the Finger Lakes in New York. You can find them in area grocery stores. Mm. You get you know, some fig preserves or some sort of fig spread and put a little dab of the fig spread on top of a little piece of the Nancy's Fancies Champagne mm. Cheddar. And you have you some unoaked Chardonnay with it. Oh, it's to it die is, for. Yeah. I hope everybody I mean, had a pen and paper on yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, it's one of, you could easily make a meal out of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's not that and we haven't gone to a You may convert us to Chardonnay lovers yeah. after all. Yeah. So do you have a favorite white variety? My favorite Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. And especially from New Zealand. Mm. I love so the like punch. The, you like that grassy grapefruit. I do. Okay. And Jessica? Um... Pinot Grigio, it's a good old standard. I'm, I drink more red wine though, or rosé, or sparkling. <laughs> when do you guys drink white wine? Are you a summer drinker? Or? We drink white wine all year. It really depends on what kind of food we're having and what the weather's like outside. So we live in North Carolina. It could be 75 degrees in the middle of January. So it's really hard to drink a white wine, or red, excuse me, a red wine when it's that warm out. Mm-hmm. But it really does depend on what food we're having. We're very much a pair the food with the wine kind of people. So if we're having fish, you might have a lighter red with like salmon, but it's tough to do that with mm-hmm. a lot of other fish. Yeah, typically I'll make out like the menu for the week and I'm like, okay, we'll probably have a white wine on this day and we'll have red wine this day. And so, yeah, nice. it's really it really just does depend on the food. So well planned. I, I just have a bottle of white always in the fridge and a bottle of red always on the table. So. <laughs> Whatever strikes the mood, right? Or a box handy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, because then it never really goes yeah, bad all exactly. that quickly. So. And they make actually decent um, boxed white wine nowadays, I think. I think it's something that we need to be less afraid of is because, yeah. you yeah. know, the advances in technology, it's not just all the the bottom of the barrel yeah. type mm-hmm. stuff or the bottom of the stainless steel tank type stuff. <laughs> um, it, it's it's really some good quality stuff that goes into yeah. those. So, What's your favorite um, white wine grape in North Carolina? What do you think North Carolina should focus on or mm. does Petit, well? Petite man saying. Mm. Uh, the smaller berries, I think that, I think it has a little bit of thicker skin, does well in humidity. It's a very full-bodied. It gets really ripe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's usually not a lot of... So you're harvesting at 24 bricks. Um, you do have to watch if you're fermenting it completely dry. It can get upwards of 15% alcohol. So you got to make sure that that's balanced with the acid and, and that sort of thing and the fruitiness of the wine. But for me, that's... I think that's the white that really does well. I would love to say Chardonnay, but Chardonnay is very susceptible to early bud break, and then we have a late freeze, and you don't get a crop of Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. So Petit Man saying I think it's a little late uh, with bud break, um, does well with the humidity. Um, so I think it's interesting, if you folks are adding, adding a little oak, you can have just a bit of residual sugar. So I think for me, that's, that's the one I would pick. One for me that's kind of coming, uh, becoming more popular is Albarino. So we've been talking with a lot of people or a few people in the state who think that Albarino is like a grape that mm-hmm. we should really be investing in. Mm-hmm. Does well for the climate, actually makes a really good wine. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, you can you can go like more of the Spanish, Rio Spicious type style, or you could go a little bit something more different, yeah. but it, it makes a really good white wine. Like yeah. it's perfect sparkling, with right? They, the they can sparkling. Did a sparkling Albarino, right? I think so, many years, a few years ago. Yeah. They've done it, they've recently they released. Recently was a skin for it. Yes, yeah, so it's so much slightly orange. orange, but it's not yeah. too dark. But Albarino seems to be catching on in Virginia, so I would expect 
that it will move south a little mm. bit. Um, Petit Manzang is also becoming very popular in Virginia, so I would expect to see more of those varieties. And one of the other varieties I think that does pretty well here is Vermentino, mm-hmm. uh, or as the French call it, Roll. Um, there seem to be a lot more plantings of that coming up. And then, of course, Tremonet is our hybrid that does really, really well here. Yeah, I was going to say. It's a diverse demeanor, so it has that nice floral mm-hmm. spiciness. So, What about for you right. two? Yeah, Tremonet was one I was going to bring up. It just seems to do really well here. It's very prolific. <laughs> it's, it's unique, too, because it's yeah. kind of spicy, kind of floral, right. different. I had a really... I was thinking of it. I have a hard time with this one. I like Viognier, but... From having worked in vineyards, I know what a pain it is. So I don't, if I owned my own vineyard, I would never plant it. But I do appreciate those that are producing good Viognier's in North Carolina. Yeah, it's a labor of love for sure. And when you get it right, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So very cool. Well, thank you very much for the tour of white wines. I think we all have a few that we can maybe think about a little bit differently now. So Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back, and we were just discussing about the Food Truck Radio and, and how what a unique event that is. Uh, so Max, talk to us a little bit more about some of the other events that you have at, at Grove and of course, those might look different uh, as we start to reopen. Uh, but talk to us about the types of things that you would usually see uh, at Grove. Yeah, so so one of the big events that gotten canceled for the spring, and hopefully we can redo it in the fall, is is the North Carolina Cheese Trail has their big annual uh, Cheers to Cheese Festival out here each year. So we'll have more than half a dozen gourmet local cheesemakers. Um, we this year we had, not only did we have cow and goat cheese, but there was going to be uh, sheep cheese represented as well as water buffalo cheese made right here in North Carolina. So those are you know another type of event like the food truck rodeos where we can mix local food with local wine and usually local craft beers as well, uh, and, and just try to tie all that together. Uh, we do have concerts out here. We do a number of uh, charity events out here. And then one of the things we started just a little over a year ago is um, a promoter up in New York has been renting out the winery one uh, day a month to do comedy shows out here, the winery comedy tour. And so we usually get uh, most of the comedians are from the New York or Philadelphia area and they're coming through, you know, they're, they're nationally traveling acts. And, and so that, that, that's been a lot of fun as well, just sort of, one day a month turning Grove into a little comedy not comedy club. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. With the pandemic, can we talk a little bit about how that has impacted your business at Grove as well as kind of the industry as a whole? Yeah. So so right now it's been huge. So March, April, and May are our three biggest months of the year. Uh, historically, over half of our profit is made in those months. And historically, over half of our inventory is moved in those months. So big events like the Greensboro Food Truck Rodeo, the Durham Food Truck Rodeo, you know, those can move uh, dozens or or even more cases for us. Um, The food trucks that we work with, those guys have not been, in most cases, able able to open at all. Um, The restaurants that we sell to, those sales have basically gone to zero. So sales, of course, through our tasting room have gone basically to zero. So, you know, we've seen a slight pickup in our sales to to wine stores. We're in a number of uh, locally owned fine wine stores, but that's really been the only part of our business that that's held up during the pandemic. Do you, do you have ideas of how things will operate differently as we start to reopen? I, I think it would be nice for wineries and uh, breweries that have patio areas. I think that's going to be one of the safest places sure. for people to to congregate as long as they're staying socially distanced. You know, you've got plenty of sunlight and wind out there and and uh, it's easy to keep people further apart when you're in an outdoor space where there's lots of room. Right. So um, I'm, I'm hoping 
that the the governor sort of lets us open up the um, the patio areas first, and, and and that at least that would let us open up enough that we could probably be break even. Uh, I don't know until we can get back to doing sales by the glass and tastings and our restaurant customers come back. You know, I, I don't think we'll we'll be profitable until then. But but at least if we could have, you know, you could take a bo- bottle out to a patio to a table that's more than six feet away from everybody else. Uh, you know, that would be helpful. From from reading the what the folks in Virginia are doing, a lot of that is how they're operating. Most I think for the most part, the folks are not allowed inside of the building unless it's to use the restroom and that's it. And then a lot of places are reservation only uh, where they're reserving tables out on their patio that are spaced at least six feet apart. That that, that would be good to see because I I know there's, there's, there's a lot of businesses, uh, you know, whether, whether it's a winery or a brewery or a restaurant or a, a, a comedy venue or a food truck that, that, you know, that it's tough. Sure. And folks are going to have to remember to be patient um, and to be respectful because things are going to be different than what they're used to when they go visit a winery, likely. So we just have to all keep that in mind as we as we start to venture out again. True, true. So let's take a, a quick trip back to the grapes themselves. So you had mentioned that the Grove Vineyard site that you have produces most of your grapes, but you're also getting some grapes from other vineyard sites. So Tell us how, you know, the fruit from those vineyard sites are either different or the same or, or what that does to your specific model. The oldest Syrah vineyard in the state, uh, Mary Lynn and Larry Summers vineyard, which is, I don't know, 30, 35 year old Syrah vines, um, is about four or five miles from us. Uh, and Larry and Mary Lynn also grow a little bit of Cabernet Franc and Tom stores where we get our Malbec also grows Cabernet Franc and we of course grow Cabernet Franc and even though those vineyards are all in a 12 mile circle you can really taste the difference in the Cabernet Franc from each of them Um, uh, Larry and Mary Lynn they have a cool little tarry feature to their soil so I can I can just smell that wine and and know that it came came from their vineyard and then um uh, Tom's Vineyard has a more of a more of a minerality to it, and ours has this distinct black black cherry, black uh, stone fruit flavor, and it's pretty amazing because the the vineyards weather wise are pretty darn similar, but uh, there's obviously some differences in the soil. Oh, absolutely, I'm sure. And and based off of what you're saying there, I think uh, it's clear once you can get from the the notes you get from one to the next. So that's really cool. And it also sounds like it it gives you more to blend, more to 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 work with when you're in the winery too. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So so <laughs> it, it's really cool to add uh, uh, just maybe two, three, four percent of Malbec from the store's vineyard uh, into uh, a red wine that we're working. And all of a sudden it just adds a level of, of complexity with that minerality. And of course, Malbec is, you know, a, a, a super fix it agent for color. So uh, just, just being able to add a little bit of, of wine from those others is, is, is a powerful tool in winemaking. So we, we've gone over um, a lot of your history, your backstory. What would you say you've, you've learned over the years of going in and doing, and doing this type of business? You know, I I, th- I think if someone's going in to this type of business, the probably the most important thing they need is a love of wine. If you're going to start a winery to to save the family farm or to do agritourism or because you just think it would be fun, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. And for it to be successful, the wine's going to have to be good. So I, I would think probably the biggest thing I've learned is is that I. I want to work with and deal with and the people that will be successful are those that do have a love of wine. Earlier, you mentioned, you know, Rioja and things like that. Uh, I take it you've traveled to several different wine regions all across the, the globe then. I have. I've, I've been to quite a few European wine regions and, of course, probably most, if not all, of the California wine regions. Uh, upstate New York, of course, I've seen a lot of Virginia. Uh, 
Uh, haven't yet, though, had the honor to do uh, South Africa or South America or Australia and New Zealand. So I'm looking forward to that. So do you have a favorite wine region outside of North Carolina? I, I, I do like uh, I, I, I do like Tempranillo from uh, Ribera del Duero in Rioja a lot. I, I love that. And of course, I mean, who cannot like Barolas? <laughs> yeah, we've already covered that part. So I, I was expecting to, to hear Italy in there, but but Rioja is certainly a, a good choice as well. So yeah, I mean, just, you can just sit there and eat, eat ham and drink wine all day long. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit more about uh, your relationship with the restaurants and how that got started. And you, you've already discussed how that's really and it has a big impact on your business. But um, talk to us about how you got started and what that's like working with the restaurants. You know, I, I think the really serious chefs who are serious about local are serious about uh, about having lo good local wine. And so the the Grove has had a pretty good uh, run of getting into fine restaurants where where we are a little disappointed is getting into the more everyday restaurants. So, you know, the restaurant that you go to once a year on your anniversary uh, Grove may be represented on that wine list, but the restaurant that you go to every Friday, we, we, we haven't done as well there. And, and uh, I, I think that that would be something we probably should work harder on. We tend to do better in restaurants that have uh, larger table sizes. So if you're going out and having an anniversary meal and you're only going to split one bottle of wine between the two of you, it's a lot more risk to buy a Virginia or North Carolina wine that's unknown in that sure. situation. But if we can get into uh, like a steakhouse where they're doing team building meals for 20 and you throw down a couple local wines and people taste them and go, wow, this is really good. Get a couple more bottles of that one. That, that's where we can really thrive. So Max, what is your typical taste production per year at Grove? Uh, so, so we target about 3,100 cases a year and we've been here at Grove and we've been pretty consistent with that. Um, we're going to have to make some tough decisions in 2020. So uh, like I mentioned earlier, so over half of our normal inventory movement has not occurred to date uh, due to the COVID pandemic. So we're going to have to make some inventory decisions. So uh, I'm sure we will produce much less than 3,100 cases in, uh, in 2020. Did you have any impacts from the late frost and freezes that we experienced across North Carolina in 2020? We, we, we did, we did. Uh, we had, uh, so in the 27 years I've been growing grapes, I've never seen a freeze this late in the year as the one we had in in uh, in May. So um, we actually planted a new block of Petite Mansing, and I was scared to death that that those vine, you know those vines had already leafed out. Sure. And sure. and they were actually okay, but at the very bottom of the vineyard. Um, Chardonnay, which is a pretty tough grape, we had about 80% of the plants had some kind of leaf damage on the Chardonnay. There are a few places that have posted very little damage, and then there's other places that have posted that they've pretty much been wiped out and may not have a vintage at all in 2020. So I know the situation in Virginia is even more dire. So just one more thing to add to the... <laughs> to the pile for 2020, but wine is still farming, right? Yeah, exactly. But I'm assuming 2019 was a very good vintage. 2019 was an excellent vintage. So you guys were talking about that 2009 sure. uh, Chardonnay, and 2009 was a great vintage in, in the Hall River Valley, and 2007 was a great vintage, and 14 was a great vintage, and I'll I'll bet you 19 will be as good as any of those. We're hearing from a, everyone across the state that 19 was the year so far the best at least there's that positive to <laughs> to think back on and and we're starting to see some of the 19 whites come out now um and the reds will be coming out in the next within the next six months to two to three years even uh depending on how it, people are hoping ex exactly and it was a weird vintage in that uh quantities were were good as well you know not just the quality right. but the quantities right. were good yeah we 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 had that you know, we didn't have any late freezes or frost, and, and then we had that hot, dry weather. So 
um, it was a definitely a good year. So at least we have that to, to go back on since 2020 doesn't seem to be working out so well. So Max, you had just mentioned that you've been, uh, you know, farming grapes for the past 27 years. So, I mean, a part of that time you've also been making wine and, and running Grove. So what has left the biggest impact on you over all those years? I, I think for a winery to be successful, and and this is you know looking at a lot of friends in the industry, uh, location is is key, and and that shouldn't come as such a surprise because it's it's true of other types of businesses as well. But you know one of the cool things about Grove is within about a thirty five minute drive we've got four million people, and within uh, about a uh, hundred and 110 mile circle we've got 8 million people and and so so that that's that's been very good for us um i think some of the wineries in north carolina and virginia that are further from metropolitan areas uh it, it's it's probably tough for them and probably real tough for them now where people aren't traveling as much yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we we travel Virginia quite frequently and you're right. All a lot of those vineyards are out in the middle uh, of, you know, farmland, pasture lands, and you'll be more than likely taking a dirt road at least twice to get anywhere you want to go. But comparing that to here with North Carolina, especially Grove, I mean, it's everything is paved roads that a lot of the, the vineyards are a little bit closer to either major thoroughfares or, you know, larger metropolitan areas. So uh, definitely a little more well-suited. Yeah, we, when we opened up, we were 14 miles from Greensboro. Now we're seven. <laughs> Greensboro's kept annexing out, so. Hey, that's all right. So I imagine you get most of your customers coming in from Greensboro then. You know, it, it, it's dependent on the day of the week. So on weekends, it is. It's a lot of people from Greensboro and Durham, and we're very near the Elon University, so we'll get a lot of students and parents from there um, on the weekends, but we're also on Route 29, which is sort of the main artery coming down out of the Virginia wine country. And so we'll get quite a number of people who are either headed to Virginia wines or coming back. Yes, we've been guilty of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what is it you look most forward to in the future, both for, for Grove yourself and also for, um, for like North Carolina in general? You know, I, I think we're in a transition in a lot of ways. I, I think this this uh, pandemic will probably shake out some of the wineries and, and breweries and, 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 and restaurants, unfortunately. So I think we're going to see a little bit of a shakeout. I think we're also seeing a need, and, and we saw this before the pandemic, but but even more, we, we are an agricultural product and, and we need a a workforce that can do peak demand during planting season and peak demand during harvest season. And it, and it's tough work in, in tough situations. And so, um, you know, obviously fixing the immigration system would be a, a, a great thing. Uh, but I think you're also going to see more automation. Um, we've been dabbling a little bit with, with, mechanically harvested grapes, especially when the grapes are in a good situation. I know a lot of other wineries are doing that as well. Um, we, we, for the first time, did some mechanical leaf pulling this year, which, you know, we were able to pull the entire vineyard in one day, whereas normally we do about half the vineyard with four guys in a week. So I, I think you're going to see us trying to find ways we can automate some of these labor-intensive agricultural tasks. Yeah, absolutely. I think anything that we can do to make that a little bit easier and embrace some of the modern technologies with farming are definitely going to be only a benefit to us. So we're we're kind of winding down a little bit on the questions here. So what is something that you want customers to know when they come to visit Grove Winery? We want the Grove brand to, to represent serious wines and, and fun times. And so uh, I think, you know, you look at some of the awards we've gotten, both both regional and international, you know, it, it shows the seriousness of the wines, but some of the events and, and just sort of hanging out in the patio with some of the other customers and stuff are, are real fun things to do. So I think that's that's where we want to, you know, sort of sort of mix the quality and the fun. So any uh, any parting words of wisdom or advice for any of our listeners, Max? 
No, I don't think so. I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know, you know, what you're hearing from from other wineries and with this pandemic and, and uh, you know, how's everybody muddling through? I think they're all struggling and some are struggling more than others. Um, I think the folks that are going to come out this uh, are going to make it through um, are those who are able to be inventive and um, adapt uh, coming up with different ways to interact with customers and get their wines out there. Um, but it's certainly a challenging time for the whole industry and, and of course the whole world. It's going to be interesting to see what happens as we start to reopen. And I think you're right, Max. Unfortunately, I think there is going to be some uh, closures and, and things are going to contract a little bit uh, from this. But hopefully we'll all come out better uh, on the other side. I was just going to say, you know, Grove doesn't do a whole lot of wine festivals as as a sales outlet. Um, but, but I know a lot of wineries that are in... Uh, more rural areas do a lot of festivals and I, I would think this is going to affect them a lot because I, I doubt if we are doing wine festivals at any time in 2020. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. And, and one thing I've been noticing is, you know, the, the wine industry in general, those who, who own vineyards, those who own wineries, who make the, the wine, who grow the grapes, they're a very resilient group. Uh, they're also a very passionate and determined group. So while we might have some uh, contracting in the industry, I think overall we're going to still see people uh, striving and trying their hardest to keep moving forward. So that's one thing that we've always been passionate about is, you know, support the local industry itself do what we can to Excellent. help them out. Well, Max, thank you very much for having the conversation today. We definitely appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your busy winemaking day to have a conversation with us uh, virtually. Uh, this is our new norm that we're getting used to, and I think it's a, it's a very fun pivot to do. Normally, we would be out there with you sitting down at Grove, probably enjoying some wine and chatting with you with this one, but we are, we're okay doing it a little bit remote. That's right. And we will, we will get together for a glass of wine together real soon. Absolutely. So, Max, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you, wine guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Max. We hope you learn more about Grove Winery and the Hall River AVA. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know what we can do to improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Talk is a free run LLC production.